This is a Double J podcast. For copyright reasons, the music has been edited. To hear the full tracks, listen to the J Files Thursday nights on Double J or head to doublej.net.au and click on the track list at the bottom of each episode. Hey, it's Castran here. Welcome to The J Files, the podcast for people who love music. Each episode is like a quick music history lesson. We pick a different artist or band, we look at some of the most important moments in their career, and we celebrate their impact on music, all in less than 30 minutes. We also give you access to the Double J and Triple J archives, packed full of iconic interviews. On this episode, it's one of the biggest, most incendiary bands of the 90s. The reason why we're here is right here, you know, and these two fingers and Brad's arms and Zach's mouth and Tom's fingers. Rage Against the Machine exploded in 1992 with their debut self-titled album. Just victims of the in-house drive-by. They say don't you say how high. They dominated the decade with their fusion of hip-hop, funk and hardcore and their fiercely political agenda. The sound was legendary. You knew a Rage Against the Machine song as soon as you heard it. By the end of the 90s, it was all over. And while it was short-lived, it was deeply influential. So how did this band come up with their signature sound? Drummer Brad Wilk shared some of his early influences with Triple J's Francis Leach in 1993. I was never the kind of kid that said, OK, I'm a punk rocker, I just listen to punk rock. I took in all facets of music. You know, I started out you know, really young listening to Led Zeppelin and... and the who and stuff like that. Just because we get around. The punk rock thing came around, I got into that. And around high school I really started getting into like James Brown and George Clinton, Parliament, uh, T Funk, that whole thing. And out of out of high school really really started getting into jazz, like you know, Miles Davis and Coltrane and, and drummers like uh, Elvin Jones and Tony Williams. So I had all these influences in me, and I always was looking for a band where I could utilize all these type of influences within a band, you know, within one song. I mean, take stuff like uh, Killing in the Name that will be something that's pretty straightforward, 4-4 four, four groove, you know, that's that's not swinging at all, then, you know, turn, turning it around into something that's completely funky and swinging. I think that's just all part of where, you know, how many influences are in the band and, and, and where we're coming from. So it's pretty exciting to be in a band to have, you know, so much freedom um, playing-wise. Brad Wilk wasn't the only one who listened to Led Zeppelin and the Sex Pistols growing up. 
In 2009, Richard Kingsmill spoke to guitarist Tom Morello about some of his early musical influences. When I was uh, 13 years old, I bought a guitar for 50 US dollars and uh, a couple of songbooks and marched down to my local uh, music uh, shop to take guitar lessons. And I wanted to learn Detroit Rock City by Kiss. And Black Dog by Led Zeppelin. been there and plunked down my five dollars and told them what I wanted to learn and they told me that I couldn't learn that today. I had to learn how to tune the guitar. That was a horrible waste of time. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I thought, you know, I'll pay my dues. So I went home and I learned how to tune the guitar that week and I came back with my five dollars and my two songs and I said, well, this week we're going to learn the, um, the C major scale. I thought that was, that was just, what a horrible waste of time that was. So I didn't, I just put, basically put the guitar down for four years uh, in complete frustration. Uh, until I got the uh, the Sex Pistols record. Right. <laughs> I was in a band 48 hours after I bought the cassette tape of Nevermind the Bullocks, and uh, even though I didn't know how to play a chord on the guitar, I thought, well, well, here's music that's just as powerful as anything I've ever heard, and you know, maybe later this afternoon I could play it. <laughs> so uh, that's what really encouraged me to pick up the guitar. The other two members of Rage Against the Machine, frontman Zach De La Rocha and bass guitarist Tim Comerford, had a very different experience. They grew up just around the corner from each other in a neat and tidy planned city in Orange County. Here's Timmy C talking to Richard Kingsmill in 1999 about what life was like in Irvine. Turtle Rock was what they called it. You couldn't paint your house any color. You couldn't have bushes that were overgrown. You couldn't leave your garage door open. You know, it was so regimented, the whole thing, that I think music, you know, it's, it's kind of a creative outlet that kind of breaks away from that. It transcends that weird world that had so many rules. Your mom died when you were quite young? She died when I was like when, when I was 20 years old. Right, she, okay. was, she got cancer of the brain though when I was in third grade. So from the time I was in third grade until then, she was a, a handicapped person. Yeah. Jesus, that must have been a hell of an experience to have to go through. It was hard, man. It was yeah. a hard life, I'll tell you. And I, Zach and I were friends while that was going on. He actually was involved in that part of my life, and that we knew each other from the time that I was in sixth grade until today, obviously. So he he knew my mom and. He was involved in that as well. You know, it's pretty... Did you guys go to the same school together, you and Yeah, Zach? we went to some same junior high school and high school. It was crazy because I, I, where I lived, there was a, a field behind my house that was called the UCI, you know, University of California, Irvine, the college that's there. They had their, their farmland. It was quite a few acres of land, and I spent a lot of time out in that field. But right behind my house, there was a road, Bonita Canyon, behind my house, and then that field... And then over there, the next thing over was the, U- the UCI housing, hmm. and that's where Zach lived. So, like, that field was in between, and I spent a lot of time, not necessarily going to Zach's house, but, like, out there with Zach, out there with other friends, and just out there by myself. Just, it was like a mating place. It was just kind of a weird spot, man, the fields. We'd get drunk or whatever kids do, you know? Like, that was when I first experimented with drugs and drinking and that kind of thing, and just 
tripping out on and you know I'd also go out there to kind of like blow off steam and then I would sometimes go out there and cry and stuff a lot about my life and weird shit you know I didn't spend my time in my room when I was a kid when all this was going on reading Karl Marx you know <laughs> I was in my room playing bass you know and that's like you don't hear that enough like within the context of rage it's like the music kind of gets left by the wayside you know we accepted an award for the Liberty Hill Foundation when we went touring with U2 and we got the award the Liberty Hill Foundation award and a lot of people stepped up to talk about how political we were and how in tune with politics we are and, and you know and that kind of thing and nobody was going and they just rock and that's <laughs> the reason why we're here you know yeah and that's what i was thinking i was like the reason why we're here is right here you know and these two fingers and brad's arms and zach's mouth and tom's fingers and you know it's just like Nobody sees that kind of... I think it might be a given, though. If you were a wimpy band yet had all that sort of political energy behind you, I don't think there would be very many people listening to what you were saying. I think the two go hand in hand, and it's almost like a given that you are a great rocking band music-wise. All the extra bits, the stuff that you talk about and the political issues, few other bands tend to go down that road these days. So that's what makes Rage Against the Machine sort of stick out, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I think there's that music for some reason allows has as little tolerance for politics, but every once in a while it lets in bands like MC5 and like The Clash and like Midnight Oil and Rage Against the Machine that come in and have something to say and people are willing to hear it, you know, and it's it's not every day that you get the get to fuse the politics into the music, you know, and it's uh I, I feel lucky. There's a lot of things about being in Rage Against the Machine that I feel really good about. One of them is the fact that we are that political band that's out right now. Another one is the fact that we, as a as a band musically, we have a very unique sound. You know, whereas with other bands that that I might hear, I, I sometimes will think, God, you could interchange this singer with this band, and it wouldn't sound any different. Hmm. But we have a signature sound. You know. When you create material in Rage Against the Machine, is it essentially from a jamming session? Definitely. We're like riff-oriented. We, we get together and we write music where the four of us will be jamming. Somebody will come in with an idea. You know, we're, all dipl we're very diplomatic about the way that we handle things. We split everything equally, and that goes right into the, the studio when we're jamming and writing songs. We, anyone can come out with anything, and we'll get together and someone will come up with something and then we all shake our heads yes you know that's like that's rocking and it's on and then it's just a process of okay now we have these other riffs that we've done the same thing with over the last however many months or weeks or whatever time we, we would have been playing and we start creating arrangements then Zach, and this is with the four of us there then Zach will step up we'll figure out a chorus and we will arrange a song outside of him laying down all the vocals and the verses you know and then we'll give him the music and the arrangement and he sometimes will come up with parts on guitar on bass on drums the guy's like a virtuoso musically he's really talented and uh 
So, so, we'll so he's not standing outside the rehearsal room, no. you know, playing pinball. He's hell's he, no. Right. He's there listening, playing, getting involved. It's like when you come to a Rage Against Machine rehearsal, like for me being in the band, I want to get there on time because if you're not there on time, there's going to be somebody on your instrument showing you up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of heavy. And like we all kind of play, like I take pride in my drumming, you know, I, I drum a lot. You know, at home I have a drum set and I play all the time. It's like it's helped my bass playing tremendously. So, like, I love to play drums. If I get there and there's no one on the drum set, I'll play drums, you know? Zach is a sick drummer, you know? So it's like, Tom can play a mean bass. Zach is a hell of a bass player. Amazing guitar player, you know? Brad can play bass and guitar, you know? So it's kind of nice. That democratic songwriting process was an important part of the band's debut single. Released in 1992, it was a track that would go down in history as one of the greatest call to arms ever written. A revolution against institutional racism and police brutality. Here's Tom Morello talking to Richard Kingsmill in 2009 about Killing in the Name. I was uh, giving a guitar lesson and teaching a student uh, how to... Uh, do drop D tuning where you detune the lowest string on the guitar to the D note um, and as I was you know demonstrating you know how you know it, it affects the way one plays guitar I just started playing that riff that you know the, the you know when the big riff in the song drops so I stopped the guitar lesson uh, got out my little cassette player cassette recorder uh, recorded it down because uh, I, I, it felt like it was a good one from the very beginning. So I, I just tucked that away and then brought it to uh, Rage Against the Machine rehearsal later. And I had sketched out pretty much the arrangement of the song, but Timmy C came in with a fantastic surprise. That that opening riff, the dun 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 do that, that you know, the kind of the, the bouncing part at the beginning. That was all Timmy C. Uh, that was his contribution to the song. And then. Um, Really early on, we you know it was a song that we didn't know where it it uh, you know where it kind of fit in in uh, the canon of songs. We had written that we wrote that song before we had played a single gig, uh, and so when we started clobbering people with those riffs and with the you know the fuck you I won't do what you tell me, it was uh, <laughs> it it was it was pretty exciting from the very beginning. Absolutely. Since then, it's been remixed. It's been covered numerous times. It's been included on video games. How do you feel about the song now? Well, I mean, when we when we play that song live, I mean, when Rage plays it live, it's I've really seen nothing like it. Yeah, you know, when we turn the lights on the crowd and that last you know chorus comes in, um, I think if you look in the di- definition in the dictionary under the word ape shit, you there definitely have to be a picture of people losing their minds for that song. Yes, it is a song that calls for a heavy dose of headbanging, yelling along to the lyrics and generally going apeshit, as Tom Morello suggested. In 1996, Rage Against the Machine came out to Australia for the big day out. It was a performance for the ages. Here's members of Powderfinger, Magic Dirt and the Big Day Out team talking about those blistering shows. They were totally embraced by the Big Day Out audience and it actually took the show to another level, like camaraderie within the audience where there was this unification. The whole audience was moving as one. 
people in trees, there are people running on roofs, there's some guy in the nude who's up on the beer tent running along and there's cops trying to get him down, they're trying to close down the bar. Everyone just turns into an anarchist. In the crowd for those raid shows were local bands Powderfinger and Magic Dirt. Oh, it was insane. And we walked into the middle of the crowd and we're standing sort of middle back. 40 or 50,000 people. Everyone was just in the moment. Just jumping up and down in unison. Like, it was incredible. With no one on a mobile phone. I still get goosebumps just thinking about it. If you want to hear more about the Big Day Out, which was at the time the biggest touring music festival in the world, check out one of Double J's other podcasts, Inside the Big Day Out. It's a series that tracks the rise and fall of the iconic music festival. Timmy C talked about those massive Big Day Out shows when he spoke to Richard Kingsmill in 1999. The best thing for me, and I I don't want to speak on behalf of anyone in the band, but I feel the power of the pogo you know and like when we played here in uh in australia people were jumping in unison and that's powerful you know that's good for us and good for the people you know it's just like every you're all on the same page everyone's happening whereas the mosh pit i think it's pretty testosterone driven you know and i i'm really not that into it i don't feel the power of it there was a time in, in the lifetime of the band that I would look out onto a crowd and see a giant mosh pit and think, wow, we're creating this. And now I'm like, eh. you know, like it's, it's just it's a bunch of guys hurting each other and ultimately just fighting, you know, and to creating some sort of a hierarchy out in the crowd because that's what it is, you know. It's and like, it sometimes, sometimes seems so irrelevant to her, whoever's on stage as well. Yeah, they don't care, you no. know. I'm not really that into it. And crowd surfing is another thing. It's like, it's one thing if you're able to get up onto a stage and then jump off and do a backflip and land on the crowd, you deserve to be surfing, you know what I'm saying? Hmm. But not if you're just some jackass with army boots on kicking some girl that might try to tough it up to the front in the head, you know? Hmm. Does Zach say much on stage when he sees behavior like that in the Yeah, crowd? he actually does speak up quite often. And it, even if security, there's, you go to Europe sometimes and, and there's some, some crews out there that, that are used to dealing with, with soccer or football, you know, and the fans getting pretty crazy and they'll, they come in with a hard hammer, you know, they'll bring their little wooden clubs. We had that one time and it was like, no, that's not happening. And then they start strong-arming the fans. And any one of us might literally, which has happened many times, one of us might come up and just straight kick one of those dudes right in the head. And that's happened. Mm-hmm. And then you have the security guards then mad-dogging you as the band. I've been there. And so is Zach and so is Tom, you know. It's crazy. So he Zach speaks up on the mic if there's ever any women that come to the top. And then men will just start grabbing their breasts, you know, and it, it's just unbelievable. It's the worst thing you could ever watch when you're on stage. And ultimately, it is your responsibility because you're the ones up there that's getting that response from the crowd, although it, you can't really control what 30,000 people are doing in but front you of can, you. You can because we do. I mean, we after the song's over, he speaks up, and generally it doesn't start happening again. 
We've never gotten to that point where it's had, he had to say anything twice, you know? That chat happened just before Rage Against the Machine released their fourth and final record. Renegades was an album of covers that the band made with super producer Rick Rubin. By the time it was released in 2000, though, frontman Zach De La Rocha had already left the band. It's not where the story ended, though. After the breakup, Tom Morello, Timmy C and Brad Wilk formed Audio Slave with Chris Cornell from Soundgarden. Tom Morella had other projects as well, The Night Watchman and Street Sweeper Social Club. Clap for them killers. Give it up for them gangsters. One time for the killers. Double up for them gangsters. Timmy C performed vocals and bass in Future User and Walk Rat. Zach De La Rocha started a power duo called One Day as a Lion with former Mars Volta drummer John Theodore, who's now the drummer for Queens of the Stone Age. De La Rocha also released music under his own name, the first taste of which came in 2016 with the single Digging for Windows. The future's jammed like a rubber band Off my phone on a hand-to-hand Eat two from the waist, put two in his roof And I can't still live in streets all night And for the 2016 American presidential election, Tom Morello, Brad Wilk and Tim Comerford teamed up with Public Enemies Chuck D and DJ Lord and Cypress Hill's Be Real to form political supergroup Prophets of Rage. Tom Morello and Chuck D spoke to Zanro about the project in 2018. Yeah, well, it was during the uh, election cycle in 2016 in the U.S., which was absolutely crazy. And I saw, uh, you know, on the bottom of the screen, cry on on CNN. It said, Donald Trump rages against the machine. I said, oh, hell no. You don't get that. That's not for you. So I very furiously tweeted about it and then checked myself and realized that it wasn't going to be enough. A, 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 so, a social media assault was not going to be enough. We were going to have to put a band together and Prophets of Rage was born. How far back do you guys go though? How did you know each other before this? Public Enemy was the first group to ever take Rage Against the Machine on tour. Oh. I was getting ready to say, well, let's go back to Noah's Ark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and can you believe like 2015 it, it swirled in Tom's head and um, here we are, 2018. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a band that you know, was born of a political emergency, but it's a band that really loved playing together. And you know, it's members of Rage Against the Machine, uh, Cypress Hill, Public Enemy. We've played over in front of 
two and a half million people in our you know wow. two year history, and this is our first time in Australia, and we're totally psyched. It's a band, as you mentioned, that's made up of you know all, all of those uh, other acts. Um, but the the chemistry of this supergroup, I imagine, would live there in your separate outfits. You know, you with DJ Lord Chuck, and, and yeah. you obviously with other members of of Audio Slave and Rage. How was it when you all got together and you started making music? I mean, was it kind of like who gets to lead the ship, who gets to be the captain? No, it was it was a, it was a bit of a process because it really it looked great on paper, but when you get in a room, in order for a band to be great, it has to be authentic. It has to find its own chemistry, and we couldn't rely on past chemistries we had to forge our own so we practiced for months in secret in the san fernando valley near los angeles before we had something that we felt was really potent and let me tell you over the course of the last two i mean we've played uh, over a hundred shows now and it's really it really feels great on stage and we are rocking super furiously was that fun when you had a little secret that no one else knew about that you were just working on this project and in the secret deep in the valley yeah <laughs> there are, first of all there's a lot of secrets deep in the valley <laughs> I know I used to live in the valley. Exactly. There are a lot of secrets. Of the, yeah, exactly. This is. Uh, I'm not a native the, California, so it wasn't talk it wasn't hard for me. But, but <laughs> yeah, everybody yeah. else kind of lives there. And, you yeah, know, yeah, is from yeah. there. So, yeah, I was hearing it like leak out here and there. But you know, everybody kept a good rap on it. Oh, good work. Yeah. The sound of Prophets of Rage is, of course, leaning more towards that kind of rap rock that you've been living with for quite a while, Tom. But for you, Chuck, did it feel easy to slide into that coming from Public Enemy and your background in music? Yeah, because we have, you know, we're fans, aficionados of, of the records and also records in uh, in general. We come from DJ culture and mm. and these are the best players in the world. And we've been friends and also acknowledged it from, from close up and far. So no one plays like Tom, Tim and Brad when they get together. Nobody. And I'm not just saying it because I'm close and I'm not just saying it because I am biased, but it's just the truth. And out of that alchemy comes, you know, a power and a committed speed and precision that, that few can match. Yes, Chuck D is spot on there. Those supremely talented musicians have a power that few can match. Rage Against the Machine's legacy hasn't dulled since the 90s. They were uncompromising and in your face. Brash enough for you to slam dance to mindlessly, but if you wanted to dig deeper into their lyrics, they gave you plenty to think about as well. The J Files is a Double J podcast. Make sure you like, follow and share. Our producer is Gab Burke with production support from Sam Wicks and Phoebe Bennett. Theme music is by Art vs. Science. You can check out Double J anytime on the Triple J app or at doublej.net.au. I'm Kaz Tran. Thanks for listening. Listener.